Today we are looking at John 13, 31 to 35. And this passage contains the beginning of what theologians call the farewell discourse, or the upper room discourse. It begins here, and it will continue all the way through to the end of John chapter 16. So basically what has happened is Jesus has eaten the Last Supper with his disciples, and the next day he's going to be crucified. And from where we are in John's Gospel through to the end of John chapter 16 is just one conversation. This is called the Upper Room Discourse, or the Farewell Discourse. And then at the end of chapter 16, <coughs> Jesus stops speaking to his disciples and speaks to his Father. And the whole of chapter 17 is what we call the High Priestly Prayer. And you can see, just by the sheer volume of the Upper Room Discourse within John's Gospel, and then the High Priestly Prayer on top of that, John really wants to emphasize by giving almost four whole chapters uh, to the Upper Room Discourse, and almost five whole chapters if you include the High Priestly Prayer, to this last night of Jesus' life. And so, realistically, it's going to take us a good while to get through to the end of John chapter 17. And so for the next while, it's the same night. And we're going to be plodding along week after week, and, and there's no way we'll finish it in a month, so I can even say month after month, through one night of Jesus teaching with his disciples at the end of chapter 8 or at the end of chapter 17 uh, the beginning of chapter 18 I should say Jesus heads over to the garden of Gethsemane where he will be betrayed and the narrative continues then with the account of his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection but this is the last night of Jesus earthly life and Judas has just left the room to betray Jesus. Verse 31 picks up there and says, When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. This statement refers, of course, to Jesus' impending death on the cross, which the world views as utter humiliation, but which in God's eyes, and now in our eyes as believers, is the fullest revelation of the glory of the Christ. The unbelieving world sees no glory in a man shamefully treated, mocked, executed as a criminal. But God sees, and by faith, we have also come to see the cross as the place where the Son of God came from heaven to give up His life as a ransom for many, to lay down His life as a good shepherd for the sheep. It is the place where Jesus stood, if you're familiar with ancient history, as Leonidas and his 300 men stood between his people and great danger in the battle of Thermopylae. When the Persians invaded and the Spartans positioned themselves in a narrow little channel and 300 men stood against this army of thousands, 
interposing themselves between their people and great danger. Jesus stood, as it were, on the cross like a Leonidas, interposing, as the old hymn puts it, his precious blood between us and that which threatens us. It is the place where Jesus conquered rather than being defeated. It is the place where Jesus gave life instead of succumbing to death. The cross is the place where Jesus saved instead of imperiling His followers as most kings imperil their followers when they fall in battle. Jesus, by falling in battle, so to speak, saves His followers instead of imperiling them. The Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, is glorified, not shamed, but glorified at the cross. And so is the Godhead. This is the meaning of this two-way statement. God is glorified as Jesus the Man, that Son of Man prophesied in Daniel, who is given kingdoms and authority. Jesus is glorified as this man, the appointed mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God is glorified as this man goes to the cross for the sins of those whom he has been appointed to covenantally represent. God is glorified in him. And he is glorified in God. The cross redounds to the glory of the Christ. And the cross redounds to the glory of the Godhead. The cross redounds to the glory of the Father who planned this whole thing. The cross redounds to the glory of the Son who willingly came to lay down His life. The glory of the Spirit who underpinned Jesus as He went to the cross. As He experienced the anguish of Gethsemane and upheld Him as the wrath of the Father poured down upon Him. Such that He was not consumed. The Godhead and the God-man, the Christ, the Messiah, that mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, are both glorified in this incident. This is the meaning of this two-way statement. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself. This reciprocal relationship, the man Christ Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah is glorified, and so is the Godhead. This statement is not expanded upon here in John 31 and 32, however, but it's simply mentioned. And so having addressed it the way I have thus far, I'll move on from here. I'll just merely mentioning it too. And the reason is because, the reason it's not explained further is because it's not intended here by Jesus to be a point of teaching per se. Rather, Jesus is setting a context by saying that for what he is about to say. The statement, now is the Son of Man glorified, etc., which we just talked about, merely provides the context of what follows. The whole upper room discourse, the whole farewell discourse is framed by this idea that the Son of Man is to be glorified at once. And God in Him, and He in God. It's here. We've read Jesus saying things like, My hour has not yet come, but now Jesus is saying, He's to be glorified at once. The hour is now here. 
And it is a statement like King David's in 1 Kings chapter 2, who called Solomon to him in his old age and said, I am about to go the way of all the earth, which is an idiom for dying. And he said, I am about to go the way of all the earth as a preface to the instructions which would follow. This here in John 13 is Jesus calling his disciples to his deathbed, so to speak. Telling them that he is about to go the way of all the earth, so to speak. Establishing the context for them, that he is about to die. They are to take what follows then to be indicative of what was central and primary in the mind of Jesus. With respect to their doctrine and practice moving forward. On your deathbed, you're not liable to say, make sure you remember to turn out the lights when you leave the house to save electricity. As I depart from here, you can save $7 a month if you're diligent about managing the light switches. You don't, you don't talk about peripheral things in a moment like that. David told Solomon, his son, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. David wanted to preface this charge to Solomon with the statement, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. These were the things that David wanted to impress upon his son, and so he prefaces this charge with the statement that he's about to die. Likewise, Jesus here, acting as a father would, calling his disciples little children, is about to present his dying instructions to his sons, so to speak. He is about to instruct them and command them as David commanded his son, Solomon, prior to his death. And what does Jesus lead off with? A commandment to love one another. First, note that the commandment is to love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is in keeping with the Old Testament commandments to love, which Jesus taught us are a summary of the moral law. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Leviticus 19 and verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is very important to Jesus that the duty to love is embraced and is implemented by his disciples after his departure. This is what God has always wanted from the human race. Nothing more, really. Just love. Love God and love your neighbor. This sums up all the law and the prophets. If this is the case, though, that this is what God has always wanted, then in what sense was the commandment new? After all, the, that's the second thing we should notice about the commandment. First, it's a commandment to love. And second, it is a new commandment to love. 
by way of explanation, the command is not new in substance, but in form. After all, it's not as if God's people had never been commanded to love. I just cited Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 and Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Jesus has taught us that that sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus is well aware of the prior existence of those commandments. God's people had certainly been commanded to love before, but they had never received the command to love in this particular form before. After all, there had never been before a son of man, a Christ, a Messiah, a foot washer and a cleanser of souls to emulate. But now Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. God's people had never received the command to love in that form before. It is this new in some way and not new in another way, quality of this command, which prompts John to say much later in his first epistle, behold, or pardon me, not behold, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. The moral expectation of God has always been that we love both Him and our neighbors. Jesus didn't create a new standard in the giving of a new commandment. Some people have this idea that in the Old Testament, we have the law, and in the New Testament, we have this higher standard of love. But I suppose they just haven't read where Jesus says that love sums up the law. There is no new standard. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13. Jesus didn't create a new standard in the giving of the new commandment. But Jesus sets himself forth as a living, breathing embodiment of what a life lived in love for God and neighbor looks like. Never before has God said love like that man. There is no commandment in the Bible. There never was a love like Moses commandment. There never was a love like Ezekiel commandment. For the simple reason that all of these men were blemished themselves. To call men to love like Moses. To call men to love like Ezekiel. Or Daniel. Or Job. Or whoever else. Even the most righteous men of the Old Testament. To call men to love like them would be to call them to an imperfect standard. And so God has never said love like that man. These men were all themselves blemished and spotted and imperfect. But now, as the spotless lamb is prepared to be slaughtered on this next Passover day, God says, love like that man. Love like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we ought to love one another as Jesus has loved us. 
He is our example. He is our model. But wait, you say, I can't. I mean, Jesus was Jesus. He was divine. He he's, can't really be a realistic model, a realistic example for us because he was divine. Well, that objection is no good since it is not the divinity of Christ which is presented to us here as a model for our love. The statement is not love like Yahweh. The statement here, Jesus does not say, a new commitment I give to you, love like Yahweh has loved you. It is Jesus as the Son of Man. Look at verse 31. That's the only title given to Jesus in this passage. Of all the titles we could pick, of all of the aspects of Jesus' person that we could examine or look at, that John could have interjected here, that Jesus could have used for himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man and then says, Love as I have loved you. Jesus doesn't want us merely to copy Yahweh. He holds himself forth to us as the Son of Man. A human. That mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. The one who by the power of the Spirit lived in obedience to the Word of God. Achieving a perfect human righteousness. In order to clothe humans with His human righteousness. It is not the divinity of Jesus that is held forth to us in this passage as an example, but the humanity of Jesus. By God's word and spirit, he commands us to love like Jesus. And by his word and spirit, he will graciously enable us to do so. Progressively, yes, sanctification doesn't happen overnight. But... It is made possible for us to live like that one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, by the grace of God. So let us not read the Gospels noting the dissimilarity between our moral character and the moral character of Jesus, and then shrug it off because, well, we're not God. So, yes, I mean, I fall, I fall much short of his example, but after all, I'm just human. Let us note, rather, that same dissimilarity between our character and his, but pursue becoming like him. Because he is our example as redeemed sinners. What does Romans 8 tell us? That we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. God is going to make us like this man who said, love one another as I have loved you. We have a promise of God that he will help us love one another as Christ has loved us. So let us endeavor to embrace Christ-likeness believing the promises of God all the while to get us there.
It's not just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. They didn't know how to bring that phrase across, by the way, in Chichewa when I was preaching in Malawi. I said that phrase and the translator stopped and looked at me. And I explained to him in English. And then he, and then he said, oh, okay. And he said something to them and I asked him later, what did you say? He said, lift yourself up by your shoelaces. It's not just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not just lift yourself up by your shoelaces. It's look to the promise of God. For example, at the end of Romans 8, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Pursue obedience to this new commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us by grace. Taking hold of the promises that He who promised is faithful and if He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ, He who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. And so by faith, pursue this conformity to Christ. Pursuing this Christ-likeness, pursuing this love is important because God has commanded it. It's also important as a diagnostic of spiritual health, maturity. Jesus tells us here that the degree to which we manage to love one another like Christ has loved us is the degree to which we look like a Christian. What does a Christian look like? What is a Christian characterized by? Jesus says that love for one another will be the distinguishing mark of Christians. Jesus does not say, by good theology, will all men know that you are my disciples. When you can explain the hypostatic union and the inter-Trinitarian relationships, and when you can explain superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism, and when you can expound all of the five points of Calvinism and discuss Puritan theology and all of its diversity and richness, and God doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say here in this passage, by good theology will all men know that you are my disciples. Jesus doesn't say, by your political leanings will all men know that you are my disciples. We know if you vote for so-and-so that you must not be one of my disciples. But if you vote on the other hand for so-and-so, if you take a conservative political opinion or a liberal economic policy, God will, or I mean, men will know that you are my disciples. Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus doesn't say, by the wearing of shirts and ties will all men know that you are my disciples. Jesus doesn't say, by battling other Christians who disagree with you on this matter or that matter, will all men know that you are my disciples. What does a Christian look like? We answer functionally the question, what does a Christian look like, in all of the aforementioned ways, you know. We automatically assume if someone doesn't lean a certain way politically, well, they're not a serious Christian. We, we automatically assume by the sign of the church building, whatever denomination it says, well, they must not be very serious disciples. The way we work out our Christianity often gets lopsided. 
and imbalanced and eccentric. And obviously, you know full well I'm not telling you don't learn good theology. You know full well I'm not telling you theology doesn't matter. You know full well I'm not telling you that working out the implications of what God says in his word and applying that to the political realm doesn't matter. You know full well that, that I, I don't think that uh, these are indifferent matters. But do you understand the way that we make those things the mark, the primary mark of this is what Christianity looks like, this is what the faithful looks like? Who are those who I'm going to throw my lot in with? I'm going to throw in my hat with these people or those people? Very often it's political, very often it's denominational, very often it's primarily, whatever it is. What does a Christian look like? Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, one for another. That's very challenging, isn't it? Because, frankly, from my perspective, reformed folks can be some of the most disagreeable and difficult bunch. Well, yes, but we love people by rebuking them so that they can repent. And it's loving to extricate people from their sin. You see? So, but here, here's the thing. Here's the kicker. What does it say? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Who will know it? All people. Which means that we have to be operating with some measure of common ground with all people as to what love is or this makes no sense so if we say well we have a reformed definition of love that the world doesn't get then the world will never see that we're loving you understand this passage assumes that there is some common understanding among Christians and non-Christians alike of what love is and that Christians will act in a way that is manifestly loving, even in the eyes of all people. So yes, again, you know that I believe there's a place for rebuke and exhortation and correction and church discipline. You know that. But this is still quite a challenge to us. As we examine ourselves and think about ourselves, are we a loving bunch? Am I a loving person? And you can't just play games with the definition of love until the shoe fits and then be like, see, so once I, once I adjust the definition of love accordingly, then it's clear that I am a loving person. If the world doesn't think that you're a loving person, right, then they're never going to know, according to what Jesus says here, that you are one of his disciples. There's still something here that we have to reckon with. Notwithstanding that people outside of Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins, that the God of this world has blinded their eyes, that it is who? The fool who says in his heart that there is no God. Notwithstanding all of these things, we should be living in such a way that all people can see the love that we have one for another, and that that will be something that speaks to them of the genuineness and the authenticity of our Christianity. 
Loving the saints isn't just one thing among many that we have to do as Christians. It's central. It's primary. When Jesus calls his disciples to his deathbed, so to speak, the first thing that comes out of his mouth, in a longer discourse, which we'll get to, but the first thing that he leads with, love one another. Apparently John got the message because as um, extra-biblical sources know, even when he was an old man and couldn't stand or even sit to preach for any length of time, they just used to bring him in on his bed, which they would carry by the four posts, to give a little word to the church. He would just lay there and say, love one another. And then they'd take him back out again to rest. Apparently John got the message loud and clear. A brother read for us earlier in the service about the nickname that Jesus had for John and his brother. The Sons of Thunder. Boanerges, the Sons of Thunder. Wanted to call down fire from heaven. Among, upon the unbelieving cities. It's that same young man who eventually gets brought out on this little bed with just one message. Love one another. You see how the grace of God changes us and transforms us and softens us? I guarantee that John was not more of a coward in his old age than he was when he was young. I guarantee that he was not less principled when he was old than when he was young. I guarantee that he didn't just become a compromiser when he was old, when he really stood for the truth when he was young. What happened was the grace of God impressing this message of Jesus upon his heart. That though there are many important things like good doctrine, good theology, real practical holiness, working out the implications of a biblical worldview into the political realm, etc., etc. These things are real, legitimate, valid, central, through it all, in it all, attending it all, alongside it all. Love as Christ has loved you. Brothers and sisters, if someone examined your life closely, would he be sure and certain that you have love for the saints? Or would you appear to have largely the same sort of affinities and relationships as unbelievers have? Unbelievers think like this. Family first, right? Sunday meals with extended family over the gathered worship of God's people. Taking care of the needs of family members then, but not fellow church members. Even unbelievers offer politeness and socially acceptable arm's length interaction with the saints if and when they attend church. Busy weeks mean the church gets pushed to the periphery in the nominal believer's life or in the unbeliever's life. Cancel church stuff if you have to, but family is non-negotiable. Or, I have an okay relationship with people in my church, but my true friends are those outside the church. When I want to call a friend, I don't call church members. 
Why would I? The mentality here is that church is pretty peripheral to your life. Family and friends are central. But church folks are in a different category altogether. Just Yeah, you see them once in a while. Once a week for an hour. Or let us approach the issue another way. If someone examined your life closely, would he be sure and certain that you have love for the saints by the way that you interact with them? Or would you appear to interact with them in no different way than you interact with anyone else? Do you speak with warmth and kindness about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there a charitable spirit to interpret ambiguous words and actions in the best possible way? Is there a commitment to working through difficulties in a godly way rather than either avoiding them or villainizing the other party and going to war with them? If they are in need, is there empathy in your heart and concern for them? Are you willing to love not in talk only, but in deed and truth? Or do you, on the other hand, treat God's people in no distinct way from how you treat other people or how other people would treat God's people? Like I said a moment ago, even unbelievers will come to church and generally be polite. I'm actually shocked at how polite unbelievers have been to me over the years, considering the offensive things that I've said from the pulpit. I told you about um, an unbelieving fellow who was visiting from the UK last time I was preaching at another church here in Barbados. He was incensed, I tell you. He was, he was as mad as could be. And, uh, you know, very, um, very vocal about it. Frankly, I'm surprised that doesn't happen more often. Even unbelievers will be civil and polite most of the time when they come to church. So the fact that we come to church and are civil and polite really is no mark of Christianity, no distinct mark of Christianity. I think that <coughs> I think that many of us have a long way to go before we can say that it's a really clear and obvious characteristic both of our individual lives and of our church as a whole that we love the saints. Especially when it comes to loving the saints across lines. Like, yeah, we love the Reformed saints. You know, but I'm not too sure about those Pentecostal saints. You know, I'm not too sure about those Wesleyan saints. Yeah, we love the saints, but you know, I'm not sure about those Arminian saints. I think we got a long way to go before we are characterized as people who not just play nice with others, right? Because even the world can learn to do that. And to some extent, that's just a personality trait. There are like what we would call nice people in the world. And the goal isn't really just to become nice. The goal is to actually love the saints, all of them. And that takes grace. Now you might object here that, well, the saints aren't very lovable. 
or at least they're not always very lovable. And frankly, sometimes I'd have to agree with you. I'm not lovable at times. I know that. I've been here long enough to know that not all of you are always lovable. But in conclusion, let me just say this. Our love for the saints is to be patterned after Jesus' love for the saints. And that cuts off that objection at the knees. <clears throat> because Jesus considers them his little children, his flock, his bride. Though they are not so very lovely, he has loved them with an everlasting love. He didn't just love them for a little while, but as we read earlier in the chapter, having loved them, he loved them to the end. Jesus didn't just love them up to a certain level of self-sacrifice. He laid down his life for his sheep. He puts it another way, you know. He laid down his life for his friends. He calls us unlove, unlovely as we are, unlovable as we are, his friends, and lays down his life for us. He had to work through problems with his friends, yes. He had to reprove and rebuke them at certain times, yes. But he persevered in self-sacrificing concern for their well-being. Which if we were to try to define love, other than say it's the fulfilling of the law, we might say something like that. Let me repeat it. Self-sacrificing concern for another's well-being. Jesus persevered with his friends in self-sacrificing concern for their well-being. He persevered in benevolence. He persevered in kindness. Even as we saw last week with Judas. To the very end. Judas's reputation among the disciples was so intact. On the night that he betrayed Jesus. That when Judas left the room. After Jesus told them one of them was going to betray him. And after he told three of the disciples that the one that he gave this morsel to was the one who would betray. Judas's reputation was so intact that when he left the room, all of them were like, well, who could it be? That tells you something about how Jesus treated even Judas with kindness. Since Jesus is our example of how we ought to love the church, You're not free to quit loving the saints until Jesus does. You're not free, having begun loving them, to not love them to the end. You're not free to love them up to a certain point of self-sacrifice. But like Jesus, you need to have that heart disposition that is ready to lay down your life for your friends. Jesus is who he is in the scripture 
in all of his richness and in all of his fullness loves his disciples so beautifully so fully so thoroughly and then tells us as I have loved you so you also ought to love one another and it's to be so central and so primary that this is like the mark what kind of man is John well whatever else I might say about it whatever other dirt I might dig up about it He's someone who loves the saints. I hope that could be said of me. I hope that could be said of you. What kind of church is Covenant Reformed Baptist Church? Well, whatever else you could say about them, they certainly love God's people. They're not your typical Reformed church. They actually get along well with other Christians. They're actually a pretty friendly bunch. And you can sit down and you can have a meaningful conversation with them about God's Word. And you can sense the genuine care. And you might not agree at the end of it, but they're going to be kind to you. And they're going to be forthright with you. And they're going to persevere in relationship with you. And if you have a problem with any of those people at CRBC, you can count on a mature Christian response on their end, at least, if you try to work through it. As I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. And this is to be such a mark of the kind of people we are, the kind of church we are, that even all people in the rest of the island would see by this, wow, the grace of God is at work here. These men, these women are Christ's disciples. They have to be. Look at the way they follow their master.